The following sermon was given by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, July 5th, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. I'm going to go ahead and forewarn you right now. My inner monologue, and if you didn't realize that people who do public speaking have inner monologues while they talk out loud, then you should public speak more. There's always an inner monologue going, and I should let you know that my inner monologue is doing everything it can right now to try to figure out how to sing this entire sermon. My, uh, my family watched Hamilton this weekend, and <laughs> I've not yet been able to go through the sermon this morning in my mind, not try to sing it, but God loves you too much to let me do that, so he did not give me that kind of gift, so don't worry. I'm going to try, but uh, don't, don't worry. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, Years ago, uh, my family, when my kids were really young, um, we took a trip out west for a wedding. And, and, and I'll just tell my family, I think one in the back, one here, I'll keep all names out of this, so protect the innocent and the guilty. Uh, we took a trip out west for a wedding that everybody was very excited about. Uh, but more excited, um, more excited were their hearts than for, the we- than for the wedding were for the fact that at this reception of this wedding, uh, there was going to be uh, handmade craft cotton candy and sugar sticks, rock sugar sticks. And at that point, none of my kids, because they were little, had had any of that before. Um, and it was going to be at the reception of this wedding. And, and, and they were so excited, one child in particular, so excited uh, that we said, you know, at the wedding, you're going to be able to enjoy the cotton candy and the, and the sugar sticks. It's going to be great. Never had it before. So everything in the mind and in the heart for the days and the weeks leading up to this big trip for this wedding that was very important was the fact that at that reception there was going to be cotton candy. And we were going to be able to have cotton candy. And there was so much excitement. And so we go out west and we get to the wedding and the wedding is beautiful and the reception is at this beautiful garden club in in Pasadena. Roses everywhere. It's beautiful. And there in the side is this, you know, kind of bougie craft cotton candy stand with this person making cotton candy, hand done, tasted by those getting wet married to decide what flavor it was going to be. But it looked just like cotton candy. And so that's what we've been waiting for. And kids go over to get cotton candy and the sugar sticks, the rock sugar on stick. And we have, you know, we're just enjoying the reception. The next thing I know, there's tears, there's crying, there's noise. You look over and one of my children who had such high expectations is standing there with tears pouring down their face and we can't figure out what's going on and, and go to see what's happening and there had been so much anticipation for this cotton candy and for this thing that we have been waiting to have that when they found out, not by words but by taste, that it was like, you know, rose water champagne flavored or something like that. It, <laughs> they took a taste of it and all of that expectation and all of that anticipation just came crashing down on this thing that was so nasty to their mouth. And they had wanted this thing so bad. And they just couldn't recover. There was just no recovery from that moment. The, the expectation had been so great and the disappointment so large. There was no way to get out of it. Um, just take a minute as, as we get started this morning. Just take a minute and... And think for a second about a time in your life when, when you got really excited about something. When you had an anticipation 
building in your heart for a moment, for an event, for a trip, for something. And when that moment arrived, it was an utter disappointment to you. Because everything that you'd expected in your mind didn't come to fruition in the moment. Just think about it for a second. Expectation is a powerful thing. And while I tell a story of an expectation that some of my kids had for a matter of weeks that brought great disappointment, just imagine having an expectation that has built up in the heart for centuries, for generations, year after year, for hundreds of years, expectation and anticipation building up only to have the moment of fulfillment come and it not live up to what you had in your mind and in your heart. Friends, that's the story of what happens in the hearts and the minds of God's people when Jesus shows up on the scene. For centuries, they have been expecting and anticipating this long-awaited Messiah who was going to come, who was going to establish God's kingdom rule there on earth, and he was going to rule as God's appointed king. And when Jesus shows up on, on the scene, God's people have been under Roman oppression for well over 100 years. They've been tortured, they've been exploited, they've been executed, they've been oppressed. Their hope for generations, for centuries, has been in God's promise of a Messiah, of a Christ who was to come. And when he comes, as God has promised, Rome or whoever it is at that moment is finally going to get it. See, Israel's expectation and anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promise had become very geopolitical in their mind. It was going to be a kingdom victory that was ultimately going to be won by might that would establish a particular kingdom in a particular place. Unless we think poorly of them for this, you've got to understand that for centuries, this is the very thing that had been cultivated in their hearts and in their minds. Take a moment at some point this week and go back to the book of Daniel Daniel chapter 2, for an example, I'll just give you a little example. Nebuchadnezzar was king, he was the almighty on the earth, and he has this dream that shakes him to his core. Go back and read, Daniel chapter 2. He calls all of his wise men and sorcerers and and all the, the, the people of the land to him, and he wants to understand this dream, but he won't tell them the dream. He says, you're so wise, you're so smart, you've got all the insight, you tell me the dream and then tell me the interpretation. And it's kind of funny. They're like, you know, how about you tell us the dream and then we'll tell you what it means. And he says, no, you're just trying to buy time. You come back and tell me the dream and tell me the interpretation. And of course they can't do it. But God gives this insight to Daniel. And so Daniel goes to King Nebuchadnezzar and says, "I, I can tell you the dream and God has given me the interpretation. And you probably are familiar with the story. He says, oh, king, you had a dream and I'll just read a little bit of it to you in Daniel 2. He says, you saw, O king, and and behold, there was a great image. This this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. And and this image that stood before him, he goes on to tell him that different parts of its body were made of different substances, from gold to silver to iron to bronze to iron mixed with clay. But a rock, a stone came that had been uncut by human hands, and it crushed all of those substances. It crushed that entire image to the ground and that image blew away like chaff in the wind. And then he says, here's the interpretation. I'm gonna tell you exactly what that dream that shook you to your core actually meant. That stone that struck the image that became a great mountain and filled the whole earth, 
That stone was the kingdom of God. In fact, in Daniel chapter 2, I'll read a little bit of it to you here. Listen to the interpretation a little bit. Daniel 2, let me find it. Verse, let's do it, verse 40, 44. In those days, the days of those kings, of all the empires, the different parts of the body were representing, in, those, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. Listen, it, talking about God's kingdom, it shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king this day what shall be after this. This dream is certain. Its interpretation, sure. For centuries, generations, this has been part of the picture of the promise. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand, that he is here, and the kingdom of God has come. It should be no surprise that as he began to describe this kingdom, it, it didn't quite sit in the ears of God's people. It didn't fit. It was foreign to their expectation. The kingdom of heaven, he said, is going to come to those who are poor in spirit. Theirs, those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. As he goes on and talks about the meek and the merciful, describes those of the kingdom, as we saw a few weeks ago, like salt, underappreciated, unnoticed often. The kingdom Jesus was talking about wasn't what they were expecting. And as he began to proclaim himself as king, he, he wasn't meeting the expectations that they had for him as king either. And the expectations that had been rooted so deep in their heart, that had animated so much of their hope, it, those missed expectations gave shape to their responses. And if you've read much of Jesus' life and ministry, you'll know that there were times when no matter what he would say about his kingdom and, and what God was doing, people would try to take him by force to make him king. No, you're going to fit the expectation that we have of you. You're going to do what it is we're expecting you to do. You are going to say what we're expecting you to say. By force, they try to take Jesus and make him this way. They needed him to meet this picture that they have of him in their minds and in their heart. The desires that their hearts had, they, they needed him to be that. You see, friends, expectations are a powerful thing. And if they're wrong... If our expectations in, in relationships, if our expectations of things, of people in life are wrong, we risk major disappointment, massive misunderstanding. We risk wrongly responding in our behaviors in life. We, we risk wrongly responding to these situations. So here in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is telling a series of parables and the point of all of these parables together, as Matthew puts them here in his gospel, Jesus tells them intentionally to correct wrong perceptions, to correct wrong expectations of his kingdom, of what it means for him to be king, of what it means for them to live as citizens of his kingdom now. In fact, you'll find one in Matthew chapter 13. Someone else may cover it later on this summer, but it's very familiar to all of you. It's right here in this chapter. He said, my kingdom is like a, a mustard seed. Unassuming, underappreciated, underestimated. 
But in time, it's going to grow to be the largest plant in the garden. It will house everyone. Salt. The citizens of my kingdom are like salt. Unassuming, overlooked, but in my purpose is a powerful force to push back decay. This morning, in Matthew chapter 13, in the parable that we're going to look at, Jesus is still correcting wrong expectations, wrong perceptions of his kingdom between his first coming and his promised return. And it's important that you and I listen this morning because we're given to many of the same misguided and to some degree over-realized expectations even now in our life, just as Jesus' disciples were then. And if we don't allow God by his word to correct our perceptions, to correct our expectations, we risk tremendous confusion, disappointment with him, disillusionment in this world, and honestly living out wrong responses to where we are. So let's look at the story real quick, and and then we're going to look at some of the perceptions or expectations that Jesus is correcting, and how in a sense we wrestle with those same things, And then what having right expectations is to look like in the life of God's people now. So let's go back to the story. Verse 24, he tells them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So we're back in the agricultural world, but while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds of weed among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds all appeared also. Now, this is like agricultural terrorism, And it wasn't super common, but it was common enough that there's actually a law in the Roman books about this. This was punishable by law. So it happened enough, they had to put a law in the books for it. But don't think that it's super, super common, right? But this is agricultural terrorism. This is someone's well-being, someone's livelihood, someone's substance, someone's heritage in in their fields. And this is someone trying to destroy it, right? And so the servants, they, they come to the master, verse 27. They come to him and they say, hey, did, did you not sow good seed in your field? How does it have so many weeds? Now, if you've ever grown a garden or if you ever tried to grow grass, you have every expectation that no matter how well you till, no matter where you get your soil from, no matter what you do, there's going to be some weeds that pop up. That just is part of it. There's going to be a few, no matter how hard you try, and no matter how well you follow all the instructions, there's going to be some weeds to pop up. That's not the problem. The problem here is the amount. There's something that is taken over. It's not that there were a few weeds popping up. It's the ratio of weeds to wheat that's concerning these workers here. A little is normal, but this is crazy. And so the owner says to them, an enemy's done it. So the workers say to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers to go gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles, burn them, and to gather the wheat in my barn. And as we already read this morning, you jump down to verse 36 to get the interpretation. There's something I don't want us to miss before Jesus helps set our expectations straight. There's something the disciples do again. That's very important for us. Verse 36. When Jesus left the crowds and went into the house, his disciples came to him and, and said, Explain to us the parable of the, weeds, of the weeds of the field. Now, don't miss this. Again, we'll try to read it as, as, 
as much as we can like humans, putting ourselves the best we can in their position, don't miss that his disciples had expectations of him too. They grew up with expectations of God's promised kingdom, expectations of the same prophecies. In fact, Simon was a zealot. He was ready to pull the dagger from his waist and lay waste to anyone that would oppose the kingdom of God being established there in Israel. They had expectations too, and here they are. They're they're not really understanding this kingdom that Jesus is talking about. It's not fitting the, the picture and the desire in their mind. And so what do they do? They go to Jesus to allow him to clarify their thinking. I cannot underscore the importance of this enough. It is utterly crucial that you and I demonstrate the same humility to go to Jesus to have our ideas, our expectations, our desires corrected by his word as we try to understand ourselves and the world we live in. The the voices of our world today are making so many demands and expectations of Jesus, of his kingdom, of his disciples, that you and I need to be able to hear his voice and allow him to set the expectations. And we do that by listening to him in his word. We sit our thoughts and our hearts under his word. We listen to it. We allow our thoughts, we allow our perceptions, we allow our expectations, we allow our desires to be tested by his word and receive the instruction and correction of his word. We go to him like his disciples do and say, tell us what this means. Help me understand. Jesus' word is the only true rule of faith in life. Not your ideas, not my ideas, not your perceptions, not your expectations, not mine. You and I, as his disciples, we must be willing in humility and desire to subject all of those things, all of our expectations and desires and our thinking to his word because we want his word to renew our minds, to renew our desires, to renew our expectations so that our behaviors in this life, our responses in this life, have been transformed by his voice. Our expectations have been changed. So the way that we live begins to change. Friends, I can't underscore the importance of this enough. It's just a little verse right here in the story, but it's so important. And it's so crucial for us in a day of so many competing voices. And don't think they didn't have them then too just because they don't have the same kind of technology we had. There were lots of Christs being talked about. Lots of Jesuses, lots of Messiahs being talked about. Lots of expectations and perceptions. Help me understand what you're talking about. Clarify it for me. They ask and Jesus responds in a tremendous gift of grace. As Jesus begins to interpret the parable, what he's going to do is he he is going to correct some faulty perceptions and expectations that naturally give rise to inappropriate and very often sinful responses to life based on faulty expectations. So let's listen. And as he answers them, he's going to focus on 
the two questions that come up in the parable. Where did the weeds come from and do you want us to go rip them out? That's really what he's going to focus on. So let's listen to what he says. He answers in verse 37. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man and the field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. So last week we saw another parable. It sounded kind of similar with soil and seed and sowers, but last week the, the seed was the word of the kingdom. It was the gospel. It was the proclamation of God's grace and his kingdom come. And, and here the, the seed is actually the sons of the kingdom. It's his people. It's his disciples. The weeds, he says, are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So the first corrected expectation that Jesus is going to bring to his disciples here is simply this. Wherever there is wheat, there is always going to be weed. Wherever there is wheat, there there will always be weeds. You see, in their mind, according to their expectation, when the Messiah truly came, all of Israel would fall in step with him. The hearts of God's people would be turned to him. Yet here, all the religious leaders are opposing him. In a matter of time, they're going to conspire and plot to kill him. John, the prophet who heralded his arrival, is in prison and he's confused. Sending his own disciples to say, are you the one that we were supposed to be expecting? His own siblings think he's off. Everyone's expectations are different than what Jesus is saying and doing. Where did all the opposition come from? This isn't the way it was supposed to be. Well, Jesus said the weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. You've got to understand, this side of my return, there will always be weeds where there is wheat. In his establishment of his kingdom, in his life, in his death, and his resurrection, the inauguration of God's eternal kingdom has come. But in that time, according to his purpose and his wisdom, God did not fully and finally eradicate the presence of evil or the evil one. He didn't do it. And it's important to note in Jesus' answer here, lest you have a misperception, Jesus does not say the people plotting to kill him or the Romans themselves were his enemy. He said there's a much deeper reality to it. The opposition is coming from the same one who opposed Adam and Eve in the garden, who twisted their expectations of God, who whispered to them that God was holding out on them, who told a different story about God and his character and his presence. At the root of all the opposition that you see, at the root of all the the weeds that he's talking about in the parable, there is an enemy. His tactics have not changed. He loves to oppose God's kingdom to the presence of counterfeit. I say it this way because very clearly the word that Jesus uses here for weeds is a very specific word. It's not a generic word. It's a word that correlates with a particular plant that is often, I guess, in in transliteration, our words, it's called darnel. Farmers in in the Middle East will call it false wheat. When it's sown and when it grows, all the way to the point when the initial heads of wheat begin to bloom, they look exactly the same. You can't tell them apart. The big problem is the seeds of darnel are poisonous. And if those seeds actually come to fruition and begin to drop into the ground, 
right there in the presence of the field, the entire crop is ruined. Jesus is helping his disciples understand that in this world, Satan will do his best to counterfeit true Christianity. And you and I know well enough that a good counterfeit looks just enough like the real thing that it's nearly impossible to tell the difference, but the results are tragic. And at the root of all of this counterfeit is deception. This is what the enemy thrives on. He takes a nugget of truth. He twists it to a degree. Not a 180, not 90 degrees, one degree. It's just enough off that it's hard for the heart and the mind to perceive the difference, just like he did in the garden. I was reading this week trying to figure out how to paint a picture of this for you, and I found this, and I'm no scientist, but I was reading this on a, on a blog, and it said, if, if NASA was sending a rocket to the moon, and that rocket's trajectory is set one degree off course at launch, it'll be 92 feet off course after a mile. Now, 92 feet doesn't sound that bad, right? But by the time that it's supposed to get to the moon it won't actually get to the moon because it will be 4,169 miles off course. Now, if that course was set one degree off and the moon wasn't the target, but the nearest star to our planet was the target, by the time that it would get to where it was supposed to be, it won't get there because it will be 441 billion miles off course by the time it was supposed to reach that star. Just one degree. It's the kind of counterfeiting and twisting of truth that makes the good news of the gospel all about your and my present happiness and self-fulfillment. That leaves us at the end of the trajectory thinking that God orbits around us. It's the kind of one degree off that leaves you and I living our life out here on the earth thinking that we can live in any manner or way that we want as long as we made some sort of profession. Just one degree. The evangelical church has a tremendous case of over-realized eschatology. Just one degree thinking that the promises that God has made for his people in his kingdom for all of eternity are are supposed to be held onto, roped and lassoed by us and pulled down here right now. And any lack thereof in our world and in our life is somehow an example of a deficiency and a disappointment in him. It's the simple one degree twisting of David's words in Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in him. He'll give you the desires of your heart. But do you realize that when you and I truly delight ourselves in him and find God satisfied, do you know what he does? He gives us a new heart. And guess whose desires are in that heart? His. So guess what our heart desires? What he wants. It's one degree off that makes our desires the object of his intention. It's a counterfeit. He's the deceiver of the nations. He's bent on setting false expectations of Jesus and his kingdom. He sows lies and cultivates disappointment in the hearts of God's people. 
So you've got to understand the expectation of Israel in this day is that God would do away with all opposition when he came and established his kingdom. All sin, the Romans are gone, the Gentiles are gone, all of God's people, their hearts are torn towards him, a pure and undefiled kingdom of righteousness right here, right now. And Jesus is saying, your expectation is off. My kingdom has come. It has been inaugurated. But I have not yet in my wisdom and in my time eradicated all of my opposition right away. And this didn't sit well with God's people. It didn't sit well with their expectations of God. Friends, the same truth applies to you and I today. Not just in the world we live in, and I think Jesus is talking here, if you, and we don't have time to really get into the details, but I think he's talking here about the, the larger concept of the world in which we live, not the microcosm of the church, but the church is in that world, so what applies there applies here. And I think you and I can have to deal with this reality even as we think about the church. On this side of his return, there will always be some level of hypocrisy, false teaching, and empty professions in the church. Do you know why? Well, Jesus told us it was going to be that way. Peter, Paul, go out of their way in their letters to make sure that our expectations of the church are right. There will be many empty professions of faith in the church. Those things don't prove that God is not trustworthy. They actually prove he's been honest with us all along. They don't prove his word wrong. They actually prove his word right. I mean, you've heard it all along, I'm sure, as you talk to some of your friends. Well, I don't want to go to church. It's filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Do you know what I heard one guy say one time? Maybe when I'm his age, I'll have the same kind of boldness when I preach. He said it in a sermon, but I'm going to quote him, right? He, he said he was talking to a friend of his about this, and this was one of the major objections. There's just so much hypocrisy in the church, and this is what he said. Well, then one more won't matter, will it? Jesus told us it would be that way. And so his second response to that friend was simply this. I can't think of a better place for you to be so that you can actually hear how to get saved. Jesus isn't talking about the, the issue of sanctification and ongoing transformation here. He's talking about the presence of those who truly in their heart do not embrace the gospel as good news. And he says your expectation needs to be right. His kingdom on this side of his return in glory is going to be a mixed bag. There will be some who look and sound the part, which means there will be no perfect church on this side of glory. That's why church hopping is such an epidemic in this country and why you meet people who can't seem to find the perfect place and the right place because of this person or because of this thing or because of this thing hopping from place to place to place. And guess what? They only get more disillusioned. They only get more discouraged because whether they realize it or not, they're living off a misplaced expectation of his kingdom in this day. Jesus isn't saying we shouldn't be serious about hypocrisy and false teaching and empty professions. No, he wants us to be concerned about that. He's not saying don't be concerned. He's just adjusting the expectations of his people until he does return. Because with the wrong expectation, our sinful hearts, you know what they want to do? Do you know what our sinful hearts will want to do? They'll want to do the very thing the workers in the story did. 
They want to jump in and start ripping out weeds. That's what our sinful hearts want to do. They want to jump in, take over, rip out weeds, and deliver some judgment. Owner, do you you want us to go out and, and pull them up? He said, no. By the time they were able to realize that it was actually false wheat, they had grown so much, the root systems of the two had become so intertwined under the ground that if you were to rip up the false wheat, you'd tear up the good stuff too. You'd damage the crop. Besides, here's the point I think is underneath the whole thing. You and I, if we're the workers in that part of the story, I don't think we have the kind of discernment necessary to tell them apart. Jesus said the harvest is at the end of the age. The, the reapers are the angels. The weeds are gathered, they're burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man, look at this, he, Jesus, is going to send his angels under his authority, and they're going to gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, throw them into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our job is not to distribute the judgment of God on those we think deserve it. Just imagine the church trying to do that. That was sarcasm. The church has tried to do that for centuries. Thinking that it's our responsibility, it's in our job description to go and deliver the judgment of God we think people deserve is a massive overstepping from simply following him to thinking we are him. At its root, he doesn't tell us all the details we want to know about what's going to happen at the end. That's not the point. The point is that judgment will come and justice will be delivered. All accounts according to his wisdom and glory will be set straight. But he said, that's mine to do, not yours. Do you, how do I say this? Um, Do you realize that if you and I begin to buy into the whisper that we're supposed to take over the world, Remember that little show, Pinky in the Brain? What are we going to do today, Pinky? Take over the world. You realize if we buy into the whisper that it's our job to take over the world, do you know what happens? We'll actually try to do it. That's the problem. Ed Stetzer, in his wonderful book, it's called Subversive Christianity, he He said, when Christians start trying to moralize the unconverted from a position of political power so the nation will be just, they end up hindering the mission of the kingdom rather than advancing it. His argument in that section of the book is that all along our hearts have missed the fact that Jesus' kingdom is first a spiritual kingdom before it's ever an earthly one. He's the one that's going to make it an earthly kingdom. When you and I buy into the whisper that we're doing him a favor... And like pinky in the brain, we're going to take over the world for Jesus. We've actually missed the point of the kingdom altogether. His kingdom is first a spiritual kingdom in the hearts and minds of those that will receive it to be transformed by his spirit into his image and likeness until the day that he comes. Thinking it's our job to pull out the weeds and take over America for Jesus. Convincing ourselves that we're making America the way Jesus wants it. We're doing this for him. It's missing the point altogether. It's actually trying to get our agenda accomplished rather than his. It's a 
click of a degree off. And it's damaging to the hearts and souls of those who would listen to it and those who would experience the hands of our attempts at judgment. You and I as Christians in this, I truly believe, amazing country. Freedoms, you should travel. Freedoms people don't have. But you've got to understand, how do I say it kindly? Um, If we find ourselves buying into the perception of Jesus' politics, got to watch it. It's only a slippery slide into loving the perception of his politics in our heart more than we actually love him. That's on both sides. There's a perception about this that if we're not careful, our hearts can love more than him himself. His kingdom is first until he returns, a spiritual one. It's been inaugurated. A day is coming when it will fully be consummated and judgment will come. All causes of sin, including the enemy himself, will be removed. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And the fullness of his promises will come to pass. He will make his kingdom an earthly kingdom. Until then, you and I have to have the right expectations. So what do these expectations mean for us as his disciples now while we await his return? I'll just mention two big headings and you you can tease them out through the week. Two big things it means for us now. It means patience, and it means purpose. Right expectations deliver patience, and they deliver purpose. You could even exchange purpose with persistence. Here we go, patience. One, right expectations help us realize it's not our job to weed. Only God can do that, and one day he will usher in his completed kingdom. As we've already said, when it comes to these things, when it comes to delivering his judgment You and I are poor judges. Our discernment at that level is not as sharp as we think it is. And it's not our job in his kingdom to dish out God's kingdom judgment. I mean, let's just be honest. How much for each of us is it our tendency to minimize our own sin while maximizing that of others so that we can exalt ourselves in our own minds? It's nothing but plain old hypocrisy. Right expectations help cultivate the fruit of spirit-born patience that allow us then to first be very careful to deal with the planks that exist in our own eyes. And I think if we're honest, I mean, I'm watching my clock. I'm doing the best I can, sorry. Let's be very honest here with this patience. There are some things in this world, in God's good created world, that are so evil and so hellish, they need to be pulled out. They need to be removed. Human trafficking. Racially motivated violence. Jesus agrees. They are so hellish, so evil, he wants them removed from his good creation. But guess what? He takes that more seriously than we do. Do you realize that you and I, on this side of his return, we would settle for seeing the branches of those things pulled away? 
Our hearts would settle for just seeing some of these things no longer present. But he takes it so much more seriously that he gave up his own life to die in our place to deal with the root of those things. We want the trafficking gone. Yes and amen. Salt fights that. But guess what? He wants the lust gone. He wants that root that's so deep in the heart that it looks at another person and figures out ways to use them for their own gratification. He wants it gone. He wants that partiality dealt with. You and I, we settle. If we think it's our job right here to bring his kingdom here now physically on this earth, we'll settle for for doing pruning on the branches. He's going after the heart. He's going after the source. He wants to uproot the evil. He lived and he died to do that in your heart so that you and I, by his grace, could become the wheat he's talking about. Not the judges, but to kill the root of those things in us. Which is why this word of the kingdom that we've been talking about it, it should humble us. If we hear it rightly, there's no space in it to inflate our hearts in any way, shape, form, or fashion. God's God's ways with us in his kingdom now, they, they may not seem as efficient as we want them to be. In fact, if we're really honest, and it's okay to say it, we might think they're needlessly slow. But God's ways are not needless. And God's not slow. He's patient. And he intends for his people to learn patience as well. It's one of the very slow, often painfully slow-growing fruits of his spirit. It's what enables his people on this side of his glory to dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness, the way David says in Psalm 37. Right expectations can cultivate a spirit-born patience in the hearts of God's people, but they also cultivate hope. We wonder sometimes if we'll ever change. We look at the world and we look at the things that are so hellish, we plead with God to remove them, and we wonder if it's ever going to change. And if you're really honest, you wonder if there's really hope that it will. Well, the story of the kingdom says, yes, there is. There is indeed hope because there is indeed a judge, but guess what? You're not him. There is a judge, and it's not us. Our judge, he hears the cries and the prayers of repentance, and our judge is the king who is the author and the finisher of our faith. This kind of hope with the right expectation allows us to to not be so easily dismayed at the presence of weeds. Because even in the, the darkest moments, when the weeds seem to be on the surface outgrowing the presence of wheat, we we know we shouldn't be surprised by them. And we shouldn't be surprised at how long it seems to be taking. Because we know that even in those moments, the kingdom of God is still growing. See, Jesus is here correcting the, the misplaced hope and the misplaced expectations in his day of military power and political might. And he's trying to recenter the hope and the expectation, even now for us, in the presence of his spirit dwelling inside his people over a long period of time, over all the world, until it's filled with the glory of God. 
patient, unassuming, and underestimated citizens. Friends, weeds are not a sign that Jesus is losing. Right now, until he returns, they're just part of life. And it's not always going to look like victory. That's okay. Our job is not to do the judgment weeding. Our job is to keep growing wheat. Right expectations produce this spirit-born patience that gets coupled with the reality of a purpose, a persistence to keep proclaiming the message of the kingdom and growing wheat. Persistence in proclaiming the gospel, persistent in the patient realities of ordinary faithfulness with a long-term view. I love how John Bloom said it. He said, God designed us to develop habits of obedience and holiness slowly and incrementally because the process teaches and trains us to live by faith rather than by our often inaccurate perceptions, expectations, and emotions. The waiting, the waiting teaches us to trust more in the truth of what God says than the impulses of what we see and what we feel. The long-term beneficial effect of slow, incremental change through the exercise of habit rather than impulse develops over time deeper, richer, more complex and nuanced affections for God. It integrates our belief into the entirety of our whole being. Right expectations reveal an appropriate purpose. And the priority for you and I on this side of God's return is to make sure the wheat continues to be built up, to not find our hearts so focused on God's job of judgment that we end up damaging the wheat. And so we can deal with people patiently, continuing to proclaim that regardless of what it looks like and feels like sometimes, God has not rejected his good creation. Rather, he came among us to live the life that we were created to live but failed to live and then died the death that we deserve to die in our place. It's reminding ourselves and one another patiently that on the cross, Jesus takes into himself the full consequences of our sin, the judgment of God for our treason and allows it to destroy him. It's reminding ourselves and others that God's commitment and love is so strong and so eternal that three days later he raised his son from the grave as a statement of his love, his commitment, his faithfulness, and his victory so that all who would receive this word of his king and kingdom in humility and faith, his perfect life would become yours as a gift, a gift of grace that continues to do the patient and powerful work of making you into wheat. That is the power of of God's kingdom. It was utterly contrary to the anticipated and the expected power in Jesus' day. It's seen now between his first coming and his final return and the fruit of power transformation as the word of his kingdom is received, as his king, Jesus as king is submitted to, and as his spirit begins to change us and the fruit of his spirit produces righteousness in our lives. Friends, Richard Baxter, he, 
He said we must not misinterpret God's patience with the ungodly. We must not misinterpret his patience. It's not an opportunity to be apathetic. It's an opportunity for today and for today only to realize our sins, to flee from them and to run to Christ our King, to enjoy our King and life in his kingdom. Friends, are you willing to examine the forces that shape your expectations? Please don't let wrong assumptions about Jesus, wrong assumptions about his kingdom, wrong assumptions about his disciples begin to fuel any sense of discouragement and disillusionment in your heart. Your Christian life in God's kingdom now is much more like patient, faithful, slow farming than it is like modern, fast-paced, efficient manufacturing. But you can trust your king. You can trust your divine farmer. He has very good reasons for maturing his people and his church slowly and not mass-producing his kingdom here on earth more quickly. Friends, as David said in Psalm 37, may you and I trust in the Lord and do good. May we be determined to dwell in this land and cultivate faithfulness. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, I, I'll just be honest. I, I, I can't do justice to your word. It's so full. It's, it's so rich. So please, as simply as I can say it, please help us to take away this morning by the work of your Holy Spirit eternal significance from your word. Apply your word to our heart by your spirit. May the whole of who we are embrace the message of your kingdom. Lord, this morning set our expectations according to your word. Help us to trust in your wisdom that we may by your spirit walk in your ways. We ask these things in Jesus' name for his glory and our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to listen to other sermons, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.